This podcast is brought to you by our funders, Building Better Homes, Towns and Cities and Puranga Kura Māori Research Centre. E te tī, e te tā, nau mai piki mai ki tēnei i pāho ara ko he whare mō wai. In this episode, it features Jacqueline Paul, a researcher on this project, who talks to us through the ins and outs of housing policy. She shares a bit about her own housing aspirations and her mahi as an advocate for ensuring rangatahi have safe, secure and affordable housing. Jackie focuses on the need for good policy and the complexities of working and navigating within government. Tēnā are are taringa mai! I'm Hannah and your host today on He Whare Mōwai. Introducing our guest today is Jackie. Kia ora Jackie, ko wai koe. Uh, kia ora Hannah, thanks for having me. Uh, ko wai au, uh, ko Jacqueline tōku ingoa, uh, huri tēnei no Ngāti Kānuni Kere Taenga, uh, Ngāti Tūwhare Tō me Ngāpuhi hoki, uh, ingari i nohoana au ki tāma ki makaurau. Aye. So kia ora, I'm Jackie, uh, my father is from the far north, uh, from Matauri and Tako and Wainui mm. and Tungaire, uh, but my mother is from Ngāti Kānunu Kiritaunga, so over uh, in Hastings uh, and over in Taupo as well, uh, my kōro side. So. But raised and residing here in South Auckland, uh, so really excited to have our kōrero today. All right. Could you talk a bit about your, your background and your mahi in the housing space? Yeah, kapai. Um, I think I'll start perhaps just my background. I've got a landscape architecture and urban planning background. Uh, so I did my undergrad here in Tāmaki uh, at Unitec uh, for long years. And then I've just finished my master's degree at the University of Cambridge in England, uh, where I did my urban planning degree. Uh, but in the last five years, I've been involved in a lot of mahi across the housing space. So. Some of the examples, uh, I guess I'll start with the research centre. So I'm currently based over at Ngāwai Atatui at the Māori Indigenous Research Centre where I've been predominantly involved in Māori housing research. Uh, Working with a Māori team across not only just Tāmaki but Aotearoa as well, uh, working on different projects. I also teach in the School of Architecture there at Unitec (laughs) um, and over at uh, AUT as well. I just started teaching there in the... Uh, School of Future Environments. Uh, in 2020, I joined uh, Kainga Ora, which was previously the Housing New Zealand, uh, and working in urban planning and the development committee there, so overseeing a lot of the housing projects uh, delivered by government uh, across Aotearoa. I uh, have been previously involved in the Waitangi Tribunal Y2750 housing inquiry claim. <laughs> As well, where I was an expert witness on supporting the rangatahi homelessness uh, issue uh, as part of the Te Matapahi claim. So I've kind of worked in like different spaces. Uh, It's quite a lot, (laughs) I think, just hearing it out loud. Uh, But one of the other kind of kaupapa that I've been involved with is the Manaki Rangatahi Kitamaki, which is a youth homelessness collective based here in Tamaki. 
uh, for about five years as well. So that's probably really important in terms of just understanding like the breadth of the mahi that I've been involved in in the housing space, both at you know a grassroots level right through um, a national level. So yeah, big system, huge kaupapa, um, but obviously really important given the severe issues that our people are facing. Yeah, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of jobs. But okay, so what is housing to you and what is a housing policy? If, if you can, give us some examples of that. Yeah, I think it's quite a complex kaupapa, mm. um, but I'll try to speak to it, you know, um, in a way in which different people could perhaps <laughs> absorb. <laughs> and so I guess housing policy, like in, in an academic sense or within a lot of the research and literature internationally, it's really understanding um, a lot of the initiatives that government initiate, really. Mm. So it could be... Um, understanding the context and the processes and the outcomes um, that are led, designed and delivered to some extent um, by government. Uh, but within the Aotearoa context, uh, again, it's really understanding some of the initiatives or the actions that are, again, initiated or facilitated is probably a better word, mm. um, by central government at this stage. Um, and that's really different because in Aotearoa, housing policy is highly centralized and so what that means is a lot of it's really high level mm-hmm. um, which is quite a huge problem for a lot of our grassroots communities to be involved in like some of those processes so yeah quite <laughs> it quite really is it's quite intimidating to even get a grasp on what that is and how you're even supposed to get into it yeah I mean like some of the examples right um and perhaps a lot more people would be familiar is like the example of Kiwi Build, mm, uh, which came yes. out of this Labour government um, more recently. And many will obviously argue around the failure of Kiwi Build as well. But actually, like this house that we live in is a Kiwi Build home. So actually, it does work for some Fano. The difference is, is that if we think about the issues that Māori face, right, it doesn't necessarily target um Māori specifically uh, and so we well I know that's through some of the work that we've looked at actually there's been quite a low uptake for mm. Māori within Kiwi Build but it's just the reality right it requires like a lot of money and all these other things that come with it um but some of the other examples are and we'll probably speak to some of that later but really understanding like within the planning context or like understanding different policy documents as well. So government design and like write up all these strategies. Yes. <laughs> essentially. And so some of the more recent examples are the Maihi Kaura, which is a Māori housing strategy. Uh, and that's a partnership between the Māori housing sector and the government. Mm-hmm. So essentially it's a, a partnership. Um, what that looks like um, will be interested. Uh, interesting in terms of like how that, affects our communities um, and how it actually responds to some of those issues and what are some of the solutions as well uh, in terms of the innovative approaches. Uh, Another example is the government policy statement. Again, big kaupapa, uh, which is essentially looks at just housing and urban development. Uh, And that is led by the Ministry of Housing uh, and Urban Development. And so that's kind of the big government institution who look after policy within the housing space predominantly and then you have respective ministers so it's such a big system right and it's quite complex to understand but what that means on the ground for our people in Forangatahi 
is that say for example you're a young person you need help you don't know where to go who to ask you have to go to one institution which is another one so you've got to go to msd to ask for help right so it's a, it's all these types of uh government organizations but then another organization uh the ones who design and develop perhaps a lot of the criteria so that might be through the ministry of housing and urban development but then another organization you know is the one who are building these homes so if i think about public housing right it's another so that's really tricky it's not a one door right where you go to one place to ask for help and that's quite complex um so how are young people supposed to navigate a lot of these issues mm-hmm. those are just some of the issues that we're you know seeing um but how do we change mainstream processes and practices to ensure that we support rangatahi and their fano so yeah those are just some examples in terms of why a lot of the housing policy is important right so who is supposed to help all these young people will try to get into these pathways yeah and that's a part of the discussion right and why like you know manaki rangatahi kitamaki where those who are the frontline workers those are the services and the frontline um people working with these young people they're the ones who follow the rangatahi right to ensure that they have the support and provide that wraparound support for them um and that's a lot of hard work so there's quite a lot of in my opinion there's such a huge disconnect between those who are on the ground and those who are designing and developing housing policy and so for me in the mahi that I'm trying to evolve it like understanding the system mm. how that works but how do we improve a lot of these processes so it's not so difficult right where these young people can walk go to one place and and get the support that they need mm-hmm. whether it's um mental health support you know financial support uh trying to find a home how do we work more in a coordinated kind of manner to be able to just support them so they're not having to deal with this by themselves yes for sure mm. and not be judged along the way mm tika could you expand on maori housing and youth housing policy i can <laughs> <laughs> um so i guess that was just a picture of understanding housing policy more broadly mm. uh maori housing policy uh specifically targets maori Uh, yeah. and as i mentioned one of those examples are the maihi kaora maori housing strategy and that was a refresh of the he fari ahuru um maori housing strategy which was a uh, developed in 2014 so there's always been one for a few years uh, but that one was kind of renewed now under the labor government um one of the other ones that for those who <clears throat> are involved in i guess whenua maori <clears throat> excuse me So for those who are involved in fin- understanding Fenua Māori, the Kainga Fenua Loan Scheme is the only housing policy that targets Māori homeowners essentially or landowners. The other ones are across the board are primarily focus on homeownership more generally and if you look at a lot of um government policies you you'll notice that uh and so that's that's another imbalance. But those are two, two you know only two examples of Māori housing policy. Others might also argue around the inclusion of uh, Māori housing policy within the government policy statement and the other one is in the New Zealand Homelessness Action Plan. So those are just some examples. Mhm. Uh youth housing policy is also a separate separate one. So that's probably also <laughs> important to understand um and just, you know, really reflects a lot of the complexities in this space. 
youth housing policies are still quite novel and they're mm. still quite essentially new. Um, and through the work of Manaki Rangatahi, Kitame Ki Makoto, uh, we've been able to identify significant gaps within housing policy. So some of the work that I'm working on um, at the moment is a specific report that looks at youth homelessness in Aotearoa, but with a strong focus in Tamaki. And, and through that work, we've been able to analyse at different levels um, actually which plans and policies include and recognise the importance and firstly, I can tell you that out of all of the housing policies ever, probably, there is only one framework that has ever recognised rangatahi Māori, wow. which is inc incredibly sad. Um, and that was the Maihi Framework Action. It has been lost in the next process. The other one is that the youth housing more specifically, uh, and I want to talk about them because they're very different groupings. Hmm. Youth housing uh, policies is still, as I mentioned, really new. But interestingly, there's quite a shift. And I think it's just the political kind of football at the moment. But there's a shift to recognise because of the makeup of not only our population of young people, but even more so for Māori. Um, and so people are recognising how important it is for them for the, you know, their needs, because they're quite distinctive, that we need to be able to work together to ensure that they have you know, safety and security. And within that youth housing space, which has taken me, oh, taken us, I would say, far too long to get that recognition. So in the New Zealand Homelessness Action Plan, I'll use that as an example, we can say that nationally, at least 50% of the people are young people. We are still going through this process to identify um, and provide that there's evidence that there's a high portion of those young people experiencing homelessness are Māori, right? So, so many issues there. But because of the ongoing lobbying and advocacy from, you know, many collectives, not even just in Tamaki, now they've been able to recognise that and they're going through a refresh of some of their existing plans and policies to ensure that they include them now. So inclusion and recognition is really important because these policy documents essentially identify where resources are allocated and ensure that it, these resources are directed directly to services who are working with these young people. And that's really important for like targeting equitable approaches to address a lot of the solution, uh, address a lot of the challenges that these young people are changing. Uh, facing so really huge kind of difference yeah. right there's so many layers and it can be a lot to kind of take in as well at the same time so it's all part of this one system though mm. but if for someone like me who has some you know well in-depth experience in the space how complex and difficult it is it's extremely concerning because how can we expect other young people to kind of navigate the system? Hmm. But also, I guess, gives, you know, reinforces the importance of the mahi that we do. Yeah, so how do how does the government even identify who rangatahi is and how do they even collect the data, especially during COVID? How did they find all these young people without housing, going through struggles, with everything going under lockdown? So how did they even... How do you even help young people through that? Yeah, I think it's probably really important to understand that these issues were here before COVID hit. 
Mm. They were just compounded and like they just got worse essentially throughout COVID. Um, and none of the stories changed, right? The issues were still the same. People were still advocating. But actually the need was so much more, right? And we've seen that through uh, a lot of the emergency housing special needs grants. Actually, we're a high proportion of those who are trying to access those grants consecutively were young Māori mama, you know, and that's really sad because these, you know, small families are, have their tamariki in emergency housing, which is so, you know, small and can be unsafe for many, actually, that I've heard in some of the um, stories so far. So that's quite concerning. We've seen a huge increase, obviously, in the waiting list, public housing waiting list. Uh, and there's just no way you would be able to get a home unless it was like, fast track as a high priority. So all those types of issues that came out of COVID, um, we were trying to access a lot of this data to really reflect actually, you know, who are the people who are trying to seek for help. Um, so it's it's not new under COVID. We already knew that was there. Now we're starting to get more access to this data and research and information that's needed to identify the scale of the issue. Mm. Mm. That's very disappointing. Yeah, especially if you're trying to raise your own family and trying to keep them safe and together and figure out that you're not mm. high priority. All right, so why did you choose the field of housing policy? How did you even get into policy? Oh, I didn't, this is not a field that I thought I would end up in. Um, you know, I was in the architecture space, it's probably similar issues because, you know, we were really lucky to go home to our papakainga um, and I saw, you know, the lack of infrastructure or like the access for my own whānau. Hmm. That's why I ended up in architecture in the first place uh, and then switched. And through that research, being able to identify how important policy was um, in that field and how it informs the practice and the work that we do uh, as practitioners was crazy because we don't learn policy mm. in the school of architecture <laughs> <We don't. laughs> right or in landscape architecture you don't learn these things uh but it was actually probably through my undergrad research where I started learning about uh how severe homelessness was right so uh, through through landscape architecture I was looking at as I mentioned um medium density housing and what does that mean and this idea that I would walk down the street, essentially, right? Um, and instead of seeing places, you know, that reflect our identity and spaces that really speak to some of the stories, actually it was the people who were living on the street that looked like me, mm. right? And that notion and those, just the sad reality of that and the disconnect that's where it really hit home. And so starting to understand the different mechanisms that, we could access and leverage to enable opportunities for us to address our own issues, to provide our own solutions. That's, I guess, what has always kind of driven the need to understand what the hell is housing policy in the first place. And it wasn't until I got into research with other colleagues like James uh, Bergen and Maya Ratana you know, it was always kind of like, oh, no, these old people do policy, right? Why would we even want to <laughs> get yeah. into this space? 
Um, and so it was always kind of this weird thing. Uh, but we wanted to switch like our thinking. We're like, mm. actually, this is actually really important to the mahi that we're doing. How can we transform and change, you know, um, this housing space for rangatahi, for people who were exactly like us, for who those who didn't have the same privilege or the access to resources and people. So how could we impact policy, essentially? So that's kind of how I've just ended up in here and working in the different spaces. Um, so it's not like a pathway for me, <laughs> and I'm sure it's not a pathway for many others. Right. There's just a lot of barriers along your way, and you've just discovered a lot more issues on your journey. So what are the key learnings that you've found so far along your journey? Yeah, lots of learnings. <laughs> <laughs> Where should I start? Um, I think, well, I you know, just off the top of my head at the moment, the three things that I can think about is around research, data and policy. Mm. Um, and I just want to frame it because of the specific kaupapa. So the lack of research in this space to identify really the numbers, the stories, the realities, the lived experiences of young people, right, across the board, from those experiencing homelessness, living in public housing, or those living in the private rental market, right through to those owning homes. We do not understand that, right, more broadly uh, in the key pathways. But if we can understand those stories, then we can help navigate many others, right, mm. to access other pathways and opportunities, wherever they might want to be. Many might not want to own a home, right? And that might be the reality. Maybe they just want a safe, secure place, right? Um, and ensure that, you know, it's well secure and stable. So that's really important in terms of understanding research and data. Policy, um, just through this work, the lack of recognition, the lack of inclusion, and the significant underinvestment into supporting rangatahi. We know historically that those things have actually worked as well. Um, but what are the, I guess, more contemporary solutions that we can do uh, to be able to support different options as well for rangatahi? So, yeah, those three things, data, research, and policy, probably more specifically in terms of the learnings. But, I mean, <laughs> much more to learn at the same time. So I've got a big question for you. How do you, as a young Māori female woman in in the government and in policy, how do you even cope and navigate yourself with a lot of these intimidating older men and other people that you just you don't normally see in your own space? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, it's hard. It's hard. It's a lot of work. Mentally, physically, culturally, spiritually. <laughs> like, I don't know, I worry, like, how unsafe these spaces are, and especially for other Māori who might want to, you know, aspire to go in these spaces without that kind of safety net. And I think I've been really, just really lucky to be anchored and grounded um, in Kupa for Māori spaces uh, and supported by phenomenal Māori working across, you know, many disciplines. And so... You know, with an our centre at Ngawa Atatui, like having the fundamentals, right, and sticking to our values and our principles and knowing our kaupapa, but moving in a space where you are protected at all times and not moving in isolation, for me that's really important. 
Um, but actually, what what I have found interesting is actually there's probably a lot more people who get it, right, in these spaces. Surprisingly, as well, um, and we're seeing actually many Maori working within the kawana, within those you know government agencies and leadership spaces as well. So I think there's also an opportunity for change, um, and that when we're spread across the system, right, both inside government and outside actually it's a lot stronger to collectively work together so for me as long as I am protected mm. and I have you know really great tool kind of in this space um for me that's important but how do we also continue to open doors for other young Māori who want to get into this space but ensure that they're also uh, culturally protected so yeah it's hard it's not definitely not easy um and just through some of those experiences where it feels too much. Right? I was thinking about the the Waitangi Tribunal claim. That was something different, right? Being examined by a Crown lawyer to argue whether the, the Crown had been really great at supporting young Māori. You know, why <laughs> should I ha- why should we have to argue? Why should I even be here? Right? As a young person. I shouldn't have to be here up against the Crown. To argue for help that our people are suffering. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard. It's not not fun all the time. But also, it's it's also an opportunity, right? Mm. We see some of the really great examples, like in this year's budget, an investment into transitional housing that is youth-centred, youth-specific, never happened before, right? It's taken a lot of work, but, like, that is such a moment for progress and change. So has its pros and cons. <laughs> well, you're doing a lot for other young Māori that are trying to get into this space but are just too intimidated to even try mm. take their steps into this in this pathways. Why do you think this is important for Rangatahi to try even understand housing policy? Yeah, I'm wondering if it's not that young people should understand. I'm, I think about actually it's the system. The system needs to change, right? People always talk about young people being disengaged. Actually, what are you doing to engage, right? And kind of flipping the script. Mm. So for me, that's kind of really important to think about how are mainstream changing their own processes and practices where they're more accessible for young people and even specifically for Māori. How are they thinking about their own cultural capacity and capability to ensure that their practices are culturally responsive and appropriate? Because that's where a lot of the problems are. Yes. Right, and I see that through a lot of the, well, actually just my own whānau <laughs> when they're trying to get help, mm. right, and how some of those working within the system are not there to serve the needs of our communities and so they become part of that bureaucratic system, which is really sad because people really do need help and people need to be open Mm. to be able to supporting that so yeah i would change and flip the script we young people actually what are what is the system doing to respond to meet their needs okay could you share a bit about your own housing and living experiences yes (laughs) (laughs) i can um so i'm just thinking about uh well i first five years of my life i was in manurewa Mm. My partner, and then the next five years I, we moved to Monaco. Um, but then 
because we were in the private rental market, I think the, at the time the landlord was wanting to sell the house. And so we moved to Takanini. I would have been about 10 at the time. Moved to Takanini and was living with my grandparents for a bit. Um, and then we finally moved into another home just down the road from here. <laughs> um, so been here in Takanini, Papakura for quite a while. Um, and then I moved here, um, 2019. Uh, and... You know, it was, besides the time that I moved closer to uni, to Avondale, I haven't really, you know, had never moved away from my whānau, really. I mean, the only reason why I moved to Avondale was so that I could be closer to uni. Um, because of the drive, it was so long. It was like at least an hour for me to drive yeah. every single day um, to uni. So I moved to Avondale. Um, with a family friend and a beautiful big home, like so many bedrooms and it was just the two of us. And it was so lonely and sad because he always worked all the time and I was always at uni. And so I didn't last very long. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to move home and I wanted to be with my whānau. And all of us, we still lived at um, home at the time. So otherwise, yeah, it's only been really here in this whare uh, when my friends, they bought the house um, in 2019. Um, and my best friend was like, oh, do you want to come live with us? It's just down the road, right? And my parents live down the road. So it was quite nice. Um, I was like, oh, that's a bit close. <laughs> that's a bit close to the A bit too close. Yeah, but it's actually been really great. Um, and so, yeah, moved in 2019, my boy and I. And then I, in 2020, I moved to the UK, um, which was such a big shift and very different. Um, and my son had moved to Australia. And so we were all living in different cities. So I was in Cambridge, my son was in Canberra, and my the rest of my whanau and my sisters are here in Tāmaki. Uh, and so I was living in the UK uh, in student housing, again, which is very different. Uh, and that was kind of looked after by the college. So when you go to the UK, oh, to Cambridge more specifically, you get assigned like a college and then they have their own accommodation and you live in student housing. Uh, it's about a, it's a medium density or for those who aren't so familiar with those terms. It's like a four-story building Mm. and it has uh, just like studio apartments uh, with communal areas and like lounge and shared kitchens uh, was really the only facilities that were shared and like a laundry on the bottom floor. So that was a different experience as well. Uh, So I lived there for a year really far from Fano at the time and, you know, was during the pandemic. So I couldn't just fly home or I couldn't just fly to Australia like you usually would. Our Mm. borders were locked. (laughs) You couldn't go anywhere. Same with Australia. Um, So that was an interesting kind of experience. And then I've only really just moved home to New Zealand this year in March. Um, So back home, (laughs) you know, here in Alfari. And then at the moment have really just been stressing myself out about um, moving to the US in August. Um, and have only really just signed my lease for my next apartment um, in Cambridge in Massachusetts. Uh, so I guess the housing journey begins for the next chapter. So yeah, that's kind of where I've just lived, I guess, over my lifetime and the different kind of experiences. I think what will be interesting with the US is that it's high density, right? It's massive. I would say minimum 20 floors. It's huge. Um, so that, yeah. Interesting in terms of just the different experiences within the housing space. Yeah, that's a lot of jumping around. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
after the US, what would you say is the key things that would help you choose your own housing situation? Do you prefer stability? Do you prefer closer to your facilities that you need to work? Or are you closer to home? Like, what are those key things that really drive your factors in choosing your place? Yeah, I think coming home, I'd still love to be really close to my whanau, given, you know, the length of time that I'll be away from them. And just being able to see, like, my nieces and my nephews grow up, I think, yeah, close proximity to whanau will be really important. Uh, no doubt, same with wherever I work, I think. I mean, that's a luxury of being able to work remotely. Um, I don't know, you know, I'd always thought about this idea of being a homeowner, but I'm actually like, I don't know, is that the dream? With right? these housing prices? Probably not. With, yeah, <laughs> with these house prices? I'm not sure. Um, I always think about what it would be like to be able to go home to the far north, to my dad's village, mm. to our papakaing in the north, what that might be like to build on our whenua Māori, on our Māori land in Tāko, whether there is an opportunity there. Um, so I haven't thought about it too much at this stage, but know how important just security is. Mm. You know, if there are other alternative options outside of home ownership that provide that stability and security for our whanau, um, yeah, we'll see what other pathways <laughs> are available in the five years when I get home. So, yeah, lots to think about. So what are some tips that really helped you during the pandemic in the UK? How did you cope with uni stress, with your being apart from your family and trying to still work during the lockdowns there? How did you even cope? How did, some tips for other people? Yeah, for me, in terms of my own journey and this kaupapa, I've always been like strongly focused on the kaupapa. And actually housing's been a huge part of that. Because it's been consistent, it provide a lot of consistency, right? It was the only thing that stayed the same. Mm. Everything else was changing, but I was so focused on the kaupapa. I know the need um, in terms of, you know, homes for whānau, the need for Māori, the opportunities at many different levels where I could provide a lot of those gaps for me, that was really important. So I was so focused on kaupapa. I would really encourage other people, right, to find something that drives you, that serves not only you as a person in your career and your whānau, but also our communities. Like, that's so huge because it becomes bigger than us. Mm. And I think perhaps being inherently Māori, we feel like, that there are these cultural obligations and responsibilities that we do have. Well, I feel like that anyway, and more so through this housing space, which is why I've been trying to, you know, understand the system in its entirety and try and dismantle things that don't, you know, <laughs> serve us or continue to oppress our people. So, yeah, find your purpose. How did you navigate being around different people? So from Tamaki here with like-minded people in your same culture and then go straight to UK, different kind of culture, different people, and then you're now moving to the US. How do you even navigate that? Do you change as a person? Do you just switch up? Like you need to adapt. Yeah, I think um, for myself anyway, like – my whānau are very grounded, right? They really don't care about all these. <laughs> like, like I've done some great things, but they're like, okay, but what did you cook for dinner? 
right? I'm impressed. What can you cook new? You know, like those types of things. Like that will humble you. Real so they quick. keep they keep me humble. They re- they're like like when I moved home, my sister was like, "What school did you go to again? <laughs> what degree thing did you do?" Like they just have no idea, right? And so it really does keep me humble. Um, but like really strong Maori values. I'm really committed to Kopapa. Um, so like. And I think it's not till like recently, like I come on my mother's side, I come from like a, like a lot of my whanau, uh, especially the wahine, they're all nurses. Uh-huh. So they, they, a lot of them are in that space of like manaki, you know, and so I feel like it's inherent in terms of who I am. Mm. But it's only like a recent realisation, right? My, my Both and my father's mother was also a nurse, right? And then on my, um, all the, Tani and Alfano were either like in construction and like so all really hands on and labourers um really working towards supporting Fano so they like work ethic and I feel like I've like inherited a lot of those kind of values mm. as well and so for me that remains consistent as a person you'll always continue to evolve and change and learn right and yeah. grow um, but staying grounded in who you are with a strong support network same with the you know people that I get to work with every single day like yourself and phenomenal wahine maori um, it keeps you grounded it keeps you anchored and focused on the kaupapa um, and keeps all the noise out Mm. The culture thing, again, is really different. It was such a huge shock for me when I moved to the UK. But mainly because of the the mamai within yeah. these lands here, right? What that empire did to our people. Like, that transition, like, I cannot explain how bad that shook me. It was, yeah, insane to feel, mm. right? And I had to go through this process being in a, another colonial institute, right, especially all, this, all the ones they set up here, they were not set up to serve our own people. So that was a big thing <laughs> for me <laughs> as a transition. But being able to just embrace the culture, right, that everyone here is here for mātauranga, right, to be able to share, to learn, to grow um, is an interesting transition. And I'm sure it would be, able, oh, it would be the same for when I moved to the U.S., um, yeah. But really value those relationships that yeah. you ha- already have, that you are born into, the ones that you gain along the way, um, and the ones that you'll continue to, you know, um, build in the next part of your life. So, yeah, I think just sticking to those values, principles in, in the whānau, um, but also recognising that we come, well, I'm from the far north as well, you know, just some of our tupuna <laughs> and our ancestors. <laughs> The, the people that we come from, right, and and some of the legacy that we're just trying to carry on, uh, but also the responsibility to, you know, our tamariki, but also our future mokopuna as well. So lots of mahi to do. Yes. What is your vision for housing for Rangatahi? Oh. Well, I firstly hope that they have, they have a vision because right now the reality is so much of it is beyond reach. It really is. Yeah. And, like, a lot of the mahi that, or the, even just the thinking at the moment is around the notion of tino rangatiratanga o rātou kainga, right? Mm. This notion or the principle of self-determination for not only just rangatahi but iwi hapu whānau, that they are able to exercise tino rangatiratanga. But right now that is really difficult because of the laxi- oh, lack of access, mm. um, the limited options, the limited passports, ways for them 
to get into um, housing or homes more specifically. So, yeah, as long as they have the opportunity to have a vision, right, to aspire, whatever that might be, I think that's that's part of what I'm hoping to achieve through some of the mahi, that they'll be able to, yeah, self-determine what that looks like for them and mm. whānau. So that was your vision for Rangatahi. What is your vision for Fano, Hapu, Marae and Iwi? Yeah, I think it's the same around Tino Rangatiratanga now um, for so long. Mm. Right, we're still trying to do partnership. <laughs> Woo! Partnership. <laughs> Look, it's not working for everybody. It's part of, right, part of the kind of approach. But I think there's definitely going to be a more shift towards enabling and supporting Fano, Marae, Iwi, Hapu to be able to. I mean, there are many that are already doing it, right? We know, right, Ngati Fatua, Orakai, um, Waikato Tainui, uh, Ngati Koroki Kahukura as well. So there are many people, Pabukura um, Marae with their Komatua houses. Um, so there are. Let's continue to scale up. Um, ensure and provide those resources to many who would like to get into that space and provide homes that support and serve their own communities as well. So I think there's definitely a shift towards that. So it's, again, not really my vision, but really mm-hmm. what's their vision uh, and their aspirations and how can we realise those through the you know, knowledge and expertise that we have. Mm. All right. Do you have any other advice for Rangatahi out there that might be listening? Lots of advice. No, <laughs> no but I, uh, I think, you know, through this journey and just with other like-minded rangatahi and rangatira in the space around yes, tino rangatira tanga um, and, and this notion of hope is right, is mm. not trying to lose hope under all this noise of housing crisis and all these things, pursue those goals within housing. If you want to be a homeowner, right, (laughs) how can we equip the tools to support them? But I definitely think tēnō rangatiratanga out of this. I think there's a time now for that change and that shift towards exercising that. And I think our generation just had enough at the same time. Mm -hmm. So no, no advice, but just really want to ground the kōrero, yeah, back into te rungo rangatiratanga, right, the aspirations of men, of our tupuna, of our ancestors, through te tiriti o waitangi, um, an article too, more specifically, right, <laughs> <laughs> around exercising that living and breathing um, mm. te rungo rangatiratanga today, whether it's not not even just housing, right, this is only a small component of the kōrero. How do we revert back to our own traditional systems, to our own cultural institutions, to reconnect ourselves to kāinga, the notion of kāinga, which embodies the many components from marae to whenua to moana to wai, dangahere, you know. How do we really reconnect and revert back to the things in which we inherently birthed from? Mm, I mean, yes. yeah, let's not lose hope as well. We can deconstruct all of this. <laughs> So I don't know if they took anything out of that, but just the one word. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jackie. Thanks for being here today and talking with us and sharing your wisdom and your experiences. It's a lot, but thank you again.
We hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a disclaimer from us, we are no housing experts. However, we are passionate about supporting rangatahi to secure safe, adequate and healthy homes.